Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, February 13th, 2022. It focuses on God's work to bring about renewal in an individual's life and in the life of his church. The message to all who will listen is waiting on God for restoration is always the best plan. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. You ready for God's word? All right, let's pray together. God, we invite you by your Holy Spirit to speak directly into our easily deceived hearts and to show us your way. We get things mixed up way too easily, and so God, speak truth into our hearts, speak your love and grace and mercy and correction and everything that we need into us. Help us to hear your thoughts and your words and to obey you. Amen. It's been a few years. December 6th, 2019. That's the day that I underwent surgery to repair a tear in my right knee's meniscus. The operation had been planned for later in the month, but an opening came open, and I said, sure, let's get this taken care of, because I would just as soon get it done. So I checked into the hospital that day, got ready for the procedure, set off alarms because my heart rate was really low, and eventually went under and came up after a really nice, deep sleep. And I had bandages wrapped around my knee to control the bleeding and to keep me from moving the joint and messing up the fix. I don't recall how long I had to keep my knee under wraps, but eventually the bandages came off and I was able to walk a little more normally. It wasn't long till all the kinks were worked out and walking was remastered. I was happy about this milestone, but if you know me, I wanted more. I wanted to go running. I've put thousands of miles on my legs over the last 11 plus years, and many of those miles, almost a thousand of them, were done for the run for missions. And if I went under the knife and I couldn't run, that was going to be pretty useless to me, kind of annoying. So I was ordered by the doctor not to run until I'd had my follow-up. You know the problem with follow-up visits? They're far too long after the thing, and I feel really good, but I obeyed. I followed his instructions, but I didn't really want to wait, but I did anyway. So finally, a month after my doctor had scraped away the damaged parts of my meniscus, which sounds like a horrible thing, and it is, I met with him and was given the green light to gradually reintroduce running into my life. So on January 8th, I ran exactly one mile, and it took me almost nine minutes. The next day, I ran two miles at a slower pace. My running for the next month was kind of hit and miss. I laid off for a couple of weeks when an unrelated injury raised its ugly head toward the end of that January. Eventually, though, I was able to run the kind of mileage that I was used to, and I wasn't gasping for air when I did it. Three months post-surgery, I ran my first 10-mile run, and a month after that, I ran a half marathon. I won't bore you with all the trivial stats unless you really want to know. No, okay, I won't do that. I want you to know that the renewal of this activity brought a great deal of happiness into my life. Waiting is hard, but it was certainly worth it in the end. 
Maybe you can relate, probably not to the running part, but you've had times in your life, haven't you, when things have taken a dip, when you've been in a slump and longed for restoration of some kind. Maybe it was a physical setback, but it could be something spiritual or emotional as well. Maybe someone you loved was sick and you were worn out after caring for them when when they got well, it took you a while to feel less tired. It's hard to care for somebody else, isn't it? Maybe a close friend died and grief overwhelmed you for months. How long did you have to wait until the sudden sadnesses came less often? Downturns come in all shapes and sizes. They last for short times and for long times, going into times of sorrow, weakness, disorder. We have no idea when the relief is going to come. We sometimes wonder if normal will ever return. At the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find Samuel still in a funk over Saul's failed rule. We talked last time about Saul's unwillingness to wait on God. We watched as he offered sacrifices to God, a task that was reserved for the priests alone, and we heard Samuel rebuke him for not waiting. As the message drew to a close, we hinted at the even more disheartening contents of chapter 15. We're not going to read all of this chapter, but let me read just a few of the details. God gave Saul a clear command through Samuel to destroy the Amalekites, a nation which had waylaid the people on their way out of Egypt generations before. The instructions God gave were to destroy them. Saul was not even supposed to spare their livestock. Did Saul obey? You know he didn't. He killed the fighting men who came against him and most of the cattle and sheep, but he couldn't bring himself to slaughter the best of the herds. I suppose he was looking for barbecue. I don't know. For some reason, he spared the flocks and herds, and he spared Agag, the king of this wicked people. When Samuel showed up post-battle, Saul came out to greet him. Let me read a bit of the dialogue between the two of them. I am ready for verses 13 to 15. We're going to kind of jump through this chapter. There's a couple other places, so pay attention, and I'll make sure you know where you're at. So verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them... From the Amalekites, they spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Skipping down to verse 22. Obviously, this excuse didn't fly with God, and so Samuel rebukes Saul. Verse 22, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Having said this, Samuel did what Saul could not. He put the king of the Amalekites to the sword, and then he left. The final verses of the chapter are sad. Hear what's reported to us in verses 34 and 35. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made 
Saul king over Israel. This is a pretty awful situation. The whole nation must have groaned under the weight of the heavy burden of God's rejection of their king, the king that they had begged for. Things are a mess, and they could barely hope for renewal. We're ready now to begin 1 Samuel 16. I already told you Samuel was in a funk over Saul's failure as king. Having reviewed the events of chapter 15, you kind of understand why. There's no indication of the gap between chapters 15, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king, and what comes in chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel. Was it months, maybe years? I can't answer that, but I can tell you Samuel and the people of God had been waiting for some time to see what God would do. Their waiting was not a pleasant waiting either. It is not a pleasant thing to be ruled by a God-rejected king. Let me read the first bit of chapter 16 and see what happens as the wait comes to an end. I'm going to start with verse 1 and read down through verse 5 to get us started. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. God's question's an interesting one. How long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king? The implication is that God has moved on and Samuel has not. Samuel is still focused on what went wrong, what could have been, what should have been. His eyes are on the terrible circumstances rather than on God. He's not even thinking about what God might do to restore order or to renew his people or to make things right. Samuel's mind is fixated on the human side of things and not on God's goodness and power to bring about change, or so it seems. Now, I'm not pointing fingers at Samuel, not shaking my head at him. I completely understand. I have gotten myself into funks like this. I've spent months asking why or why me about events that in life I've failed to move on when God has done so. Who hasn't? Surely you can relate. You've spent more time in self-pity than you ought to at times. You've been angry with somebody for far longer than was wise. Are you still nursing a grudge? Is God asking you, how long will you dwell on this thing? I can't know the answer to that question, but you know the truth in your heart of hearts Are you paying attention to what God is saying to you? If you are not, renewal will elude you. Joy cannot be restored while you hang on to things which God is trying to free you from. I know I've told this story before, but years ago I was sexually abused for a brief time by a youth pastor at our church. 
When he was caught, the relationship ended. I was angry, bitter, hate-filled. There was no joy in my life. During this time, fear reigned, depression ruled. I hid it from everybody, but it was there. Then, after years, I forgave him. I didn't want to, but God insisted, and so I obeyed his command to give grace where grace was not deserved. I knew I had to forgive or I wouldn't be forgiven. I couldn't be free. It took time, but eventually I found freedom from the anger and the bitterness. The joy of the Lord came back, and I was free from all those things that had bound me up. God even brought me to the place where I could pray earnestly for my abuser's salvation and imagine us worshiping Jesus together forever in heaven. I hope that's how it turns out. How long? God asks because he has better things in mind. What does God have in store for Samuel and for Israel? A new king. God's had his eyes on one of Jesse's sons for some time. Samuel only has to pay attention to God's guidance, and good things are going to come. Thankfully, Samuel does just that. He hears God's voice and hits the road. He's got to get to Bethlehem. That's where God's new monarch lives. When he arrives in town, Samuel puts God's plan into motion. He invites Jesse and his sons to a sacrifice. This is how he's going to find the new king without creating suspicion in Saul's heart. Because ticking off a God-rejected guy could lead to all sorts of ugly stuff for Samuel and for Jesse and his sons. We're ready to read some more now. So let's read verses 6 through 10 and see how the story unfolds. The they here is Jesse and his sons. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. If you know what's coming next, forget that you know what's coming next. Imagine your Samuel experiencing this firsthand. God has revealed to you this bit of info. One of Jesse's sons is going to be the guy Aren't you a little confused at the end of verse 10? Picture the scene. Eliab strolls out. He's big and he's tall and he's handsome. That's got to be the king. We make really dumb choices based on what people look like. <laughs> but God says, nope, not him. Abinadab walks out. Not him either. Shama, no way. One by one by one. The eligible men come, the ones who fit God's criteria, Jesse's sons, and they're all turned away. God hasn't chosen anyone who's present. At this point, wouldn't you be tempted to look up and say, what in the world? I mean, you're doing what God said to do when things are not going as you expected. You're all out of options and nothing's changed. There's no indication, though, that this is Samuel's reaction. He simply says at the end of verse 10, I've already hinted at it, that the Lord has not chosen these. That's what he says. I don't sense any doubt in these words. 
It seems Samuel is still trusting when all resources seem to be exhausted, when hope feels a little bit naive. I wonder if you and I need to work on being a little less smart in God's presence. Not that you need to be stupid or anything like that, but a little less like I know what's going on. I'm not saying to act dumb or take foolish actions. I'm just thinking we would do well to recognize in every moment given to us that God likely knows what he's going to do, and we can trust him to do what's best. Do you need to hear that today? God likely knows what he's going to do, and it's likely going to be the best. I'm being a little facetious here. It's going to be the best. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible is Isaiah chapter 55. The words God speaks to Isaiah in the 13 verses that we have of this chapter encourage me to trust God who is by far wiser than I am. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah, way wiser than me. Let me read the second half of Isaiah 55 for you, starting at verse 6 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 13. This is what God has given to Isaiah to give to the people it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills were burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands." Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. God's purposes are going to be accomplished. When he speaks a word, what he speaks will come to pass. Why do you stress out when God has not chosen the path to renewal that you think is best? His way will be better than anything that you can imagine. Wait on him. Trust his higher than yours ways and his higher than yours thoughts. Believe his thoughts are far above yours and rest in him as he patiently unfolds his plan. Do you hear his still small voice speaking into your soul and into your mind and into your heart? Trust, rest, wait. God has promised restoration. He has given his word to Samuel that one of Jesse's sons will take the throne of Israel. Seven sons have passed in front of Samuel, and none of them is the new king. What happens next is interesting, to say the least. Let's read and see how Samuel's seemingly hopeless circumstances change. We're ready for verses 11, 12, and 13. You can follow along as I read and see how God pulls off the miracle of renewal that he's predicted. So he, that is Samuel, asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's 
tending the sheep. Sammy said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. God's done it. He's picked a guy from out in left field, or one that was at least left in the field. This choice defies logic. No one opts for the runt of the litter. No one that is except God. You can see if you read the Bible, he does it all the time. All the time. He does it here, and it proves to be a good choice. He finds in David a man who will obey him, not perfectly, but who is faithful and will return to the Lord every time he sins, he repents. You'd see that if you read through David's story. Does God still choose ways and means which others think are nuts? Does he still pull folks out of the crowd which the world would reject or that maybe even you and I might think, nah. Paul seems to think so. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he speaks with a church full of misfits about God's choices. And he says much to encourage them and us. This is the God-inspired truth found in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you are weak and wavering, God can use you to accomplish his good will. If you are wailing about this and that, he can restore your hope if you'll trust in him. If you're obedient, he can show the world how wonderful and how powerful he is through you. Have you been waiting for renewal of some kind for some time? Maybe the church's struggles bother you. Maybe you don't know what to say to a child who's wandering far from God. Maybe you know God has a new path for you, but you're unsure how to proceed. Wait on the Lord. Has this not been God's message to us as we've gathered together for the past few weeks? Wait for God's fullness, wait for his guidance, wait for his renewal. Months ago, last year, my wife attended a worship service at Derby Friends Church while family was in town. And Josiah the Williams, the pastor there, was preaching on waiting, and Susan knew I was preparing messages about waiting on God for scamp at the time, so she urged me to download Josiah's message and listen to it. And when I did, I heard him say these words. They're so appropriate. Patience is a way through, 
not a way out. Waiting in God will get you through the tough times in his perfect timing. So trust him, even if relief is not immediate, and it rarely is. Know God's answer will come, and it will be right and good, flawless. Is there some kind of renewal which you've been waiting for? Are you longing for restoration of some kind? I invite you to pray about this one thing, to talk to God about what you're trying to sort out and offer him your trusting heart. You can pray where you are. You can whisper to each other and pray together wherever you are. You can come to the altar and pray, whatever you want to do. You can listen to the music and let it kind of fade in the background as you do your business with the God who loves you and delights in making things brand new. Go to him as we close. My hope. 
God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. So we wait on you. We put our hope in you and trust you to lead us. God, renew us. Each one of us individually and renew your church. Help us to see what you have for us and to be obedient to you. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.